0: everyone and welcome to another Peabogs podcast. My name's Hannah and today I'm joined by Professor Sue Walker and we're going to be talking about um, medical problems in pregnancy. So Professor Sue Walker is a maternal fetal medicine subspecialist and an academic clinical researcher. Professor Walker, founded and continues to lead the perinatal medicine department at the Mercy Hospital for Women. And she's the Sheila Hanbreed Chair of Maternal Fetal Medicine as well as the head of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Melbourne. Thanks so much for coming on today. No
1: problem, Hannah. Hi everyone.
0: So every few years, the Embrace UK Maternal Report looks at the causes of maternal mortality during pregnancy and the postpartum and comments on any noticeable trends. On an ONG rotation, for me at least, there was a big focus on direct causes of morbidity and mortality like preeclampsia, obstetric hemorrhage, and pregnancy-related infection. But what the research shows is that many more women are dying as a result of indirect causes, so cardiac disease, indirect sepsis like pneumonia or flu, and neurological and psychiatric disorders. We know that pregnancy affects a woman's physiology in a host of different ways, and these have the potential to exacerbate or influence coexisting disease processes. So today I'm joined by Professor Walker, who is going to give us a brief overview into how we, as junior doctors, can approach the management of medical disorders in pregnancy. We'll start with an overview, and then we'll dive into anticonvulsants and other medications, and then focus on managing cardiac disease in pregnancy. So, which diseases in particular do we worry about during pregnancy?
1: Um, So, obviously, any woman who is considering pregnancy or who we meet in early pregnancy with an underlying medical condition, we just need to turn to what is going to be the impact of pregnancy on that disease, what's going to be the impact of that disease on pregnancy, what's the impact of her treatment on pregnancy. And what's the impact of her treatment um, on, uh, what's the impact of pregnancy on her treatment? So I guess we just need to think about those four questions. And really, um, although you're quite right in highlighting um, cardiac and psychiatric illness and others as the major contributors to to maternal mortality, I guess we also need to think about the burden of morbidity and we need to look at near-miss events and what things end up women in intensive care units and therefore what's the preventable morbidity. So just a quick little recap on physiology. Um, Just don't forget that in some respects pregnancy might be considered a bit of a stress test for life. So during pregnancy, for example, your cardiac output increases by about 50%. That reaches a peak by around about 32 weeks and thereafter stays reasonably stable until you get to term. And so it means that if you've got underlying cardiac disease, it just means that once you put that extra 50% workload on the heart or on the lungs to oxygenate that amount of blood, then sometimes women who've got pre-existing disease who've previously been quite well might fall into problems during pregnancy. So we're very dependent on the ch- physiological changes of pregnancy. That is a reduction in total peripheral resistance and an increase in cardiac output to be able to support the de- growing demands of the utero bed. So for women with underlying Cardiac disease, and perhaps particularly those where there are fixed outlet, fixed output, so things like mitral stenosis or aortic stenosis, we particularly worry about the increased demand of those. Now if you've got a 50% increase in your cardiac output, you're going to have a similar increase in your glomerular filtration rate. So it's going to be putting a little bit of pressure on kidneys if you've had underlying renal dysfunction that suddenly now you're asking those kidneys to do 50% more work. And so that's why we can sometimes find that women with either primary renal disease or kidney disease secondary to other causes such as connective tissue disease and so forth, we can sometimes find that their renal dysfunction starts to impair a little bit in pregnancy. From a respiratory point of view, if you've got cystic fibrosis or if you've got another major respiratory illness, as I say, that extra 50% of blood has to be oxygenated, but we also have the pressure effects, that is where you get a reduction in your functional residual capacity due to diaphragmatic pressure from the growing fetus, so that's why respiratory problems can be a problem. And then, of course, the liver is responsible for not only increasing the um, the increase in hepatic blood flow, but also the liver is responsible for um, metabolism of all the. Um pregnancy steroids so people with underlying liver disease we just need to think about how that will go in pregnancy and then of course there's the coagulation changes in pregnancy the physiological anemia associated with pregnancy as you get an increase in your plasma volume compared to your red cell um, mass um, so you get a physiological anemia at pregnancy which might be exaggerated when people say you've got thalassemia or an underlying hemoglobin disorder and then finally we know that pregnancy is a pro-coagulable state that's a good idea given that you know the vast majority of maternal deaths worldwide are going to be from postpartum hemorrhage and so therefore we've been designed that we are a little bit sticky rather than a little bit runny in terms of our blood during pregnancy but this of course then poses risks for people who are at risk of thrombosis whether peripheral or
0: um, uh, pulmonary embolus okay Um, and in terms of medications um, I know that sodium valproate is contraindicated in pregnancy but lots of women have stable epilepsy or bipolar disorder while taking it how do we manage women like this
1: Um, So I think that for all of these conditions, the most important visit for the patient is the visit before they get pregnant. So in some respects, I might be talking to the wrong audience here, because what we really need to make sure is that GPs and people who are in other specialty fields are asking every woman every time, what are your plans about reproduction? Are you on adequate contraception? And have you thought through how this might go when you're pregnant? So, you're right that sodium valparate, I think it follows alcohol in terms of the most teratogenic substance that's used worldwide during pregnancy. And sodium valparate has got a very important place in the management of both psychiatric conditions, but also particularly epilepsy. And there are some sorts that are particularly refractory to anything other than valparate, and women may need to start it. But nevertheless, if we had the opportunity to see people in partnership with their psychiatrist or neurologist prior to pregnancy, I think most of those clinicians would say, look, there might be an opportunity for us to vary that. We might be able to change them over to another medication that is a bit more pregnancy safe. If they said, look, it absolutely has to, they absolutely have to stay on valproate, then you might say, look, could we look at trying to minimise the dose? Let's try and keep under 1,000 milligrams a day, for example. And if we have to keep on the same dose, can we at least divide the dose so that we're just not getting that peak? Um, dose and then we need to think about okay are there other medications or exposures that are going to synergize with valproate to increase stratogenic risk and make sure that they're on um, high dose folic acid before they get pregnant
0: great sounds good and are there any resources that you'd recommend for identifying which medications are safe to take in pregnancy and which might need a bit more sort of extra precautions?
1: Um, So, look, I think in any of your standard textbooks, there'll be a fair bit of guidance about, you know, what's A, what's B, what's C and so forth. Um, From a patient resource point of view, um, Mother Risk, unfortunately, that came out of Sick Kids in Toronto has just closed. Its funding just in the last few days, unfortunately, has been cut. Um, But the Women's has a useful medication helpline for patients who are concerned. And, um, you know, again, just the opportunity if you're in primary care or you're seeing people pre-pregnancy, just to remind them, don't just stop your medications once you find out that you're pregnant so let's not forget for example that the neural tube closes on day 42 post-conception so finding out that you're pregnant at eight weeks and then suddenly stopping your anti-convulsant because you're worried about a neural tube defect risk unfortunately that risk has already happened now what we're adding to the pregnancy the risk of uncontrolled seizures so that's why it's just so much better if we get a chance to talk about this before
0: pregnancy Mm. So in line with that, if women have known valvular disease or congestive cardiac failure, how can this affect their pregnancy and what can we do in the sort of preconception period to manage this?
1: Yeah, so I think for any women with cardiac disease, again, it's optimal to see them prior to pregnancy. That's for a couple of reasons. I think you want to get in your baseline investigations before you start adding the extra strain of pregnancy onto it. So ECHO and ECG and a cardiology opinion. And we would usually sort of classify symptomatology by New York Heart Association grade one. To four. Um, and so then, once you've got an echo, you've got some idea of their functional status, you're perhaps in a slightly better position to be able to counsel regarding prognosis during pregnancy. The other thing you can do at a consult that is a little bit more difficult when someone's already got once someone's already pregnant, is just talk to them about what are the risks of fetus being affected by a congenital heart disease, and particularly, for example, if they had something like DeGeorge syndrome or 22Q, that it's important for them to realise about dominant inheritance in some of those cases. It also gives us an opportunity to talk to them about medications during pregnancy, which ones they might be on for cardiac failure or arrhythmia management, and also just to give them a broad idea that this is going to be a reasonably heavy investment during the pregnancy in terms of increased surveillance that potential for an earlier and very well monitored delivery. So I guess the ideal thing, for example, if you found someone with really critical martial stenosis, it's so much better that you find it prior to pregnancy, and then things like falbotomy and so forth can be done prior to pregnancy, and then she enters pregnancy in a much safer state.
0: Mm-hmm. So I've read that stenotic heart disease carries a much higher risk for mother and fetus than a regurgitant disease. Why is that?
1: Yeah, so it really relates to the increased cardiac output in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So because you've got this increase in 50, by 50% of cardiac output, it means that stenotic lesions are going to be much uh, more poorly tolerated Right? if you can't get that through a fixed stenotic valve. Um, whereas regurgitant lesions, they tend to actually be improved a little bit by the reduction in total peripheral resistance. So regurgitant lesions often are a bit less problematic they get bit different during pregnancy.
0: So compared with pregnancy, how does the process of labour itself pose a risk, like an increased risk for women with underlying heart disease or just in general?
1: Yeah, so um, labour is a particularly high risk time um, and that's because with uterine contractions you're getting an increase in venous return. So for people, again, who've got poor cardiac function or fixed cardiac output, that can be a bit of a problem that we're suddenly putting more demands on the heart. Obviously, regional anaesthetic can affect your cardiovascular performance and so we need to think very carefully about if we're going to do a regional anaesthetic that it's a very slow-onset epidural, for example, so, that you don't just suddenly drop um, resistance and blood pressure, particularly for those lesions where you're relying on a forward pulse pressure to get through, for example, a stenotic lesion. And then we've got the problem of blood loss at the time of delivery, and that that might be less well-tolerated by someone who's got a bit of a fragile um, cardiac system, and then most importantly, the um, massive autotransfusion that occurs as the AV-shunted pregnancy suddenly disappears. So baby's born, placenta's out, suddenly we have a reduction in the amount of blood that's going through the utero bed, and that suddenly comes back as um, increased venous return. And so there will be some situations where we might almost give a diuretic at crowning just so that we are anticipating the possibility of someone going into cardiac failure. Um, And so these... Obviously, cases are managed in a multidisciplinary team, you need a cardiologist, um, you need an anaesthetist who's got some experience with cardiac disease during pregnancy, and then we just need to decide where are they going to deliver. So often it might be they need to deliver in a tertiary centre with adjacent high dependency or ICU facilities, and what sort of monitoring is needed in terms of central monitoring, arterial line, or whether it can just be managed with oximetry and clinical um, response.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. On a slightly different note, um, pregnancy represents a period of immune suppression. So is it true that women with pre-existing autoimmune diseases have a kind of lapse in their symptoms during pregnancy?
1: Yeah, it can be a bit variable. You're absolutely right that um, pregnancy, understandably, is associated with a period of immunosuppression. You can't carry around a fetus that's antigenically 50% foreign to you without having some form of immunomodulation. Um, And there are downsides of that. Of course, we worry about uh, flu causing more problems in pregnant women or infections sort of getting more overwhelming in pregnant women related to that immunosuppression. But it does mean that some autoimmune diseases do seem to have a bit of quiescence during pregnancy. Now, that's definitely not all, but some of them you might find there is a little bit of a response during pregnancy where they're not needing quite as much in the way of medication. And for those women, I just remind them afterwards, that just during the postpartum period where there's reconstitution of the immune system, um, they might be more likely to get a flare. And that's obviously a bit relevant for the um, hepatitis you know like hep c and so forth where it's an autoimmune where you make it a bit of a flare particularly if someone for example has been on hep b treatment during pregnancy um, because of a high viral load if you suddenly um, take them off that and then they get the return to immunocompetence at delivery they can sometimes get a postpartum flare
0: fantastic so they were the main questions that i wanted to ask was there anything else that you wanted to add in general
1: no um, good luck to you all. I hope we see you all here um, doing some ONG rotations and do um, you know do get involved in the medical clinics wherever you can. And as I say, just every pregnant woman, every time, every woman, every time, just think about pregnancy, contraception, reproductive planning. Because for any medical disorder, it's so much better if we've sorted it out beforehand than once she arrives at twelve to sixteen weeks. Thanks so much for coming. Okay. No worries. Yeah. Yeah.